All right, so we're going to be in the book of uh, Isaiah. Bibles are in the back there. Uh, let me figure out what page it's on. Isaiah 40, page 511 in the blue one. 511. And we're going to read verses 9 through 27. So we're going to read a little bit uh, longer today. Um, But uh, two weeks ago, we were in Isaiah at the end of chapter 40. And I loved uh, the chapter of Isaiah 40 so much that I thought we should just keep in it. And uh, we're going to go backwards this time. And we're going to look at the first half of the chapter instead of going forward. So let's stand together as we read God's word. This is God's holy and timely word for us. That's something we need more than anything else, okay? So listen close. Isaiah 40, starting in verse 9. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lamb in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who is the Lord, or so who has understood the mind of the Lord, or instructed him as a counselor? Who did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him the knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for uh, altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor uh, to present such an offering selects a wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood the earth was founded, since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heaven like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? 
Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. You guys can take a seat. Right before our passage, there's a verse that says this. And a lot of times in churches we say this after the word of God has been read. And it's in Isaiah 48. It says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God's word will stand forever. Many things, most things in this world don't stand forever. But God's word will stand forever. It will not fade. I want to pray again just one more moment briefly before we begin. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. And so we pray that you would please take away the distractions that might exist. Fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. So this morning, um, as we come to Isaiah 40, I want to try and to take a few moments to kind of give a little bit of pastoral advice or perspective on the upcoming elections. Don't worry, I'm not going to endorse a particular candidate, uh, one or the other, uh, from the pulpit. Uh, to be honest, um, I, I kind of dread this election more than I have any other one that I've been able to be a part of in the past. A lot is at stake for our country and for our leaders, and the options of our leaders look rather grim. I've really, honestly, personally never been that uh, too interested in politics. It's something to me that always I can't seem to get my head around. It seems for me uh, I have enough trouble just trying to be a good husband, a godly father, um, to do well in my job and to think about what's going on in my own city let alone what's going on on a country stage. And for me and my wife, as we've kind of gotten to voting age and then in through college, and really as we've come to try to follow the Lord, we know that God wants us to be responsible citizens. We know that he wants us to pray for our leaders and to participate in the process that he's given us. But for us, to be honest, a lot of times it seems overwhelming. It seems so complex. It seems like there are more problems than solutions. But we know that God has called us to faithfully participate in this. And so what I'm going to try to do this morning, maybe it be in a unique way, is to encourage us and to help shape our perspective for what's coming up here in November. And so we're going to do that through looking at Isaiah 40. And you might be scratching your head saying, how is he going to do this? But just kind of stick with me, and I think that this will give us a good starting base for how we are to think about these things coming up. So our main point this morning, that is because God is truly the greatest, we are to behold and to worship and trust him no matter what. So because God is the greatest, we are to worship, behold, and trust him no matter what. And so we're going to see this as we dive into Isaiah 40. And the first verse that we looked at, verse 9 has this phrase at the very end of it that says, Behold, 
your God. Behold your God. Throughout Isaiah 40, God is giving us a picture of who he is through the prophet Isaiah. And the first thing that we are to behold is we are to behold the power of God. The power of God. It's almost as if Isaiah is giving us a call to worship, like at the beginning of our services. But here it's a call to behold the power and the goodness and the greatness of our God. See, remember last week or two weeks ago, we talked about what was going on in the book of Isaiah. The people of God weren't doing very well, right? Isaiah was coming out and to say, look, people of God, I'm calling you out, calling you to the mat, as it were, for your sin. I'm calling you back to your God. And that's what the prophet was doing. Disobedience, pending judgment from God. Hostile nations, and yet God was showing his grace and comfort and mercy to a struggling people. Chapter 40 starts out with these words, comfort, comfort. It's a message of comfort even in a, in a time that is hard and difficult. But one commentator, as he talks about this, I think he puts it really well. He says, Israel's initial reaction to the great promises God had just given may well be Here it is. These things can never come to pass. No nation has ever returned from a captivity and survived. How could we? I wonder if we find ourselves there sometimes. We see the promises of God right before us. We're reminded of them as we read them in the scriptures, as we sing them together. And we think, how could that be so? Is this really true? For Israel in this context, they're saying, We're in captivity, God. How can this be true? How can we actually get out of this and see the promises that you put before us? And yet he would. He would deliver them, comfort them, strengthen them, just like he does today for you and me. So the first thing that Isaiah is telling you and I to behold or to come and to see is God's great power. We talked about this two weeks ago at the end of chapter 40, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here. But God calls us to behold his power. power. He is all-powerful. Look at verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Guys, we have to be reminded this morning that God is indeed all-powerful, that there is none like him. Let's remember that in this election season, there is no political leader, no political party or nation that can rival the power of God. Though we act that way sometimes and we think that way, We put our leaders on pedestals sometimes that are far above where they should be. There is only one that is all-powerful, and his name is God. He is our God. Don't look to them to deliver what only God in his power and might can. Yes, we are to look to them for certain things, but don't look to your political leaders for what only God can deliver in his own power, his own might. 
Isaiah continues and says, not only are we to see God's power, but we are to see his uncomparable wisdom. His wisdom. Behold the wisdom of our God. See, we know that God is all wise. That his wisdom is not matched by anyone in the world. Verse 13 and 14 points this out when it says, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel, his counsel? Whom did he consult? Or who made him understand? Every good leader has a team of counselors, right? Every good leader has uh, uh, people that are specialists uh, on various things so that they together can form a team and to make the right decisions, right? That's kind of how our, our president works. He has his cabinet full of specialists that have given their lives and devoted their lives to certain things that he, when he needs it, he can go to them and say, look, give me some advice on this. Or another person, give me some advice on that. How should we handle this? That's because a good leader knows their limits. They know that they can only be good in a few things, or maybe even one thing. And that's why they surround themselves with a team. But that's not how God works. God doesn't need a team of specialists, a team of people giving him advice. And Isaiah the prophet is, is showing us this by asking a lot of questions. A lot of rhetorical questions is the way that he talks throughout this whole chapter. And most of these questions start out with the word who or whom. And the reason for that is because Isaiah is saying, look all over the earth and try to find someone like God. Who is like him in this category? Who does this like him? Or to whom shall he be compared? The search is for an individual, a person who can be compared to all-wise God. But the search is pointless because nobody can match our God. No one can rival him or even become close. And that's the point with all these questions. It's like a lawyer asking a question over a question after a question to the defendant. Isaiah's question here is almost funny. Who gives God counsel or wisdom when he faces a decision or a time in crisis? I mean, imagine this. God may be facing a problem and says, you know what? I'm going to call President Obama into my office. Hey, President Obama, can you give me a little, little help here? I need some advice on what to do about this Middle East problem with ISIS. How do I handle this? What do I do? And we think about that picture and we laugh at it because it's ridiculous. The God of all creation coming down to us and saying, hey, can you give me a little bit of advice about how to handle this, about how to do this? Because I don't know what to do. That doesn't happen with God. He is always wise, always knows what to do. No one teaches him the path of justice or knowledge or righteousness or understanding or how to handle things. Nothing stumps him. He always knows what to do. He never makes a stupid comment. He always knows how to lead his people and to lead the world that he created moment by moment each and every day. The point that Isaiah is trying to make to us this morning is that no one is like our God. That's the answer to all these questions. 
Is there somebody? No. Who is like him? None. Who? Nobody. That's the point that he's trying to make to us this morning. Let me read this quote to us that talks about this. No one among the children of men can do these things, but all the activities mentioned could be achieved with comparative ease by the Almighty. No one among the children of men can do these things except for God. So we have been called and encouraged this morning already to behold and to remember God's power, to behold and to remember God's wisdom, but also, lastly, we are here called to behold His sovereignty. His sovereignty. It's a big word that just kind of means His all-out authority and control. Authority and control. Remember we said earlier, this passage is all about the greatness of God. That's what my Bible, the heading of it says, the greatness of God. All throughout this passage. And the language seems highly kind of poetic. Lots of similes and metaphors that look at more and more aspects of the greatness of God. But for the remainder of our time, we're going to look at just two parts. Verses 15 through 17 and 22 through 24. And this is where it's going to speak about God being in control, especially over the nations, over the nation's leaders and its people. In one way, the ante has been upped by Isaiah. Well, if there's no person, one single person like God, what about a nation? What about the collective uh, efforts and, and authority, power, and strength of a people? Could they rival God? And again, the answer is no. But Isaiah seeks to bring this out for us when talking about the nations. Look at some of the terms that he used to describe the nations. Like a drop in a bucket. A drop in a bucket. Or dust on the scales. Nothing as nothing before him. As less than nothing. Emptiness. And then also look what it has to say about the people of these nations and the rulers. It says the inhabitants are like what? Grasshoppers. Grasshoppers, which are tiny. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. And as as if that wasn't enough, verse 24 goes into another word picture that talks about young seedlings of a plant. Now, I've shared before that I like the vegetable garden, right? Sometimes I I grow tomatoes from seed. And tomatoes take the longest, I feel like, out of any plant. And yet, so many things can kill these seedlings, right? You plant a tray of seedlings, and probably half of them even just pop up, right? So half of them are dead just from the start. When they pop up, you've got to be so careful because the stem is so flimsy. You've got to give them the right light, the right moisture, you got to keep them away from the wind. Because what happens? You put them outside too early, the wind comes and just cracks that stem. They're gone. That month's worth of work, done. So is the fragile nature of our leaders and our nations. That's the picture that he's trying to paint here. And looking at this list, it's not a flattering picture 
of the earth's nations, of the earth's leaders, of the earth's people. It shows our littleness, how small we are. It's not an impressive resume that you would bring to a potential boss. It's something that is meant to humble us. So Isaiah's exhaustive search for the one among the earth that can be compared to God or be like him shows us that there is none like him. There is none who can be compared to our God. Listen to this quote. It says, How great he must be who disposes of the earth's mightiest men with such consummate ease. How great he must be if he can take away the greatest of the leaders of our world. Just like that. So look also at God's greatness. God's greatness that can be compared to no other. We've been looking at things that describe who the, the, the nations are, who the leaders are, who the people are. But who is this great God that cannot be compared to any other? Verse 22, it says, God who sits above the circle of the earth. Also, God stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. God is the one who brings the princes and rulers of this world to nothing. He blows on them and they wither. There's no distinction there between good leaders and bad leaders. There is no match for God. You know, as I was thinking about this sermon, um, I, I remember listening to a quote. And it's kind of a long quote, but I think it's really helpful here. I want to read it to us. It's uh, actually two quotes kind of together. Um, one from a journalist, Malcolm Mugridge, and then an, uh, an apologist, Robbie Zacharias. So listen quote closely as we talk about this. And he says this. He's kind of reflecting on uh, this idea. We look back upon history, and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulated and then dispersed, one nation dominant and then another. Shakespeare speaks of the rise and fall of great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. In one lifetime, I have seen my own countrymen ruling over a quarter of the world, the great majority of them convinced in the words of what is still a favorite song that God who made them mighty would make them even mightier. I heard a crazed, cracked Austrian proclaim to the world the establishment of a German Reich that would last for a thousand years. An Italian clown announced he would restart the calendar to begin with his own assumption to power. A murderous Georgian uh, brigand who, in the Kremlin who acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the Western world as wiser than Solomon, more enlightened than Osaka, more humane than Marcus Aurelius. I've seen America wealthier and in terms of military weaponry, more powerful than all the rest of the world put together so that Americans, had they so wished, could have outdone an Alexander or a Julius Caesar in the range and scale of their conquest. All in one little lifetime, all gone with the wind. England now a part of an island off the coast of Europe and threatened with disembursement and even now bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead and remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime he helped to found and dominated for some three decades. 
America, haunted by the fears of running out of the precious fluids that keep its motorways roaring and the smog settled with trouble. Memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and of the great victories of the Don Quixote's of the media when they charged the windmills of Watergate. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. And then Robbie quotes on this. He says, Behind the debris of these solemn supermen and self-styled imperial diplomats, there stands the gigantic figure of one, because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone mankind may still have peace. The person of Jesus Christ. I present him as the way, the truth, and the life. I think about that, and I've listened to that uh, quote many times by Malcolm Muggeridge. As he reflects upon his life, as he reflects upon what he has seen with the rulers and nations of the world, kingdoms rising and kingdoms falling, leaders being uh, put into a position of power and ripped out of it by suicide or, or whatever else it would be. And yet he says, all gone with the wind. It makes you wonder, what is the point of all that? What's the point of all this, and what is it pointing to? And as Robbie closed, he talked about this, that it points to the one who is not like any other. Who is not like any other, our Lord and God. You might be saying to yourself, so how does a sermon like this help me at all on who to vote for or how to participate in the election process? We spent the whole sermon talking about who God is. And that's kind of the point. That's kind of the point that Isaiah makes, or it is the point that Isaiah makes. It's the point that I want to present to you before the, you guys this morning, that whatever happens on November 4th in the months and the years to come, that our God and King is still on the throne. He's still ruling. He's still reigning. He's carrying out his plans to a T. And it never messes up. He never lacks wisdom. He never lacks power. He never freaks out about what's going on in the world or gets anxious. He is carrying out his plans. Now, of course, we are called to take part in the political process that God has put us in responsibly. Of course, and I want to encourage that. Yes, we are to pray fervently for our nation's leaders. That's clear. It's right in the scriptures. We're to respect them, to honor them, to uphold them, to serve them. That's clear right in the scriptures. But I just want to remind us today that we have a king greater than the American president. And that is our God. Our God who is all-powerful, who is all-wise, who is sovereign, who always has been, who always will be. And our ultimate allegiance belongs to him. Our ultimate trust belongs to him. All of our power, all of our struggles, all of our days, everything belongs to him. And so as we begin to look upon an important political season, let's first behold our God. Behold our God for who he is. And I trust that as we do that, that he will give us wisdom on how to act. He will give us wisdom on how to participate who to vote for, how to do it. He'll give us wisdom, and his plans will be carried out no matter who gets elected. 
into which office or whatever it may be, because he is on the throne, and he is the king over all the earth. Now let's remember this morning that because God is truly the greatest, we are to behold him, worship him, and trust him no matter what. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this is my prayer for us. God, as your church, and it's a prayer for us as our country, Lord. Um, you know what's about to come ahead of us, Lord, in the election season. And, um, and many of us don't look forward to it, Lord, whatever the outcome may be. And yet, we need to be reminded, Lord, that you are on your throne. God, that you are our king. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that. Sometimes it seems like you are distant and far off and could care less about what's going on in our lives and in our country. But we are faced with the truth this morning that that is not true. Forgive us for believing those things about you, God. God, I pray that you would please help us to behold you, not just today in a worship service, but Lord, all throughout our week. All throughout our life, may we continually come back to the fountain, the fountain of grace, the fountain of your love, the fountain of your truth, the fountain of your wisdom, that we may be so filled with it, Lord, that we would be able to go out confidently living for you. God, we beg of you for your help. We beg of you for your wisdom for what comes before us. We beg of you for your strength and your power for what comes up this week. We beg of you to believe these things about you, Lord, and to live as though they were true because they are. We need you, Lord, more than anything else. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And you guys.